Welcome to Microdose Psychedelic Insights, powered by The Conscious Fund. This is the Sci-Fi series, discovering the cutting-edge science and research in psychedelic medicine. All right, hey everybody, this is Gaurav Dubey, I'm the host of the Sci-Fi Podcast, where we talk to leading clinicians, researchers, and industry experts to unravel the mystery that is psychedelic science. Today, I have Chris Watowski from Silera Biosciences, and I'm very excited for this episode. So thank you for joining us, Chris. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and Silera Biosciences? Yeah, so I graduated with my PhD in natural products chemistry. So in my research lab, we were primarily focused on trying to find new drugs from nature, um, primarily focused on infectious diseases and uh, uh, primarily new antibiotics as well. And I did a lot of fungal cultivation there, trying to find unique, diverse microorganisms that grow in marine environments and trying to figure out new ways to cultivate them, uh, stressing techniques because you can't really necessarily get the full plethora of natural products, uh, similarly like psilocybin in an isolated environment. So um, trying to co-culture more than one microbe together in the same flask to uh, change its chemistry and produce more medicinally oriented compounds. Um, so after my PhD research, I went into the cannabis industry for Altmed Enterprises. Uh, they're a, a multi-state operator, a private company, and I was one of their first employees and their first scientist. And I was primarily tasked with setting up a lot of their, their processing facilities all the way from extraction to distillation, purification, product development, and manufacturing. So overseeing a lot of that process in multiple states as well as developing unique, innovative products uh, and developing a patent portfolio, which have been now approved. And they're now starting to take that IP and license it out into other states. Um, so I was primarily focused on that as well. Um, so, you know, kind of the, an interesting background. And it's really interesting and great to see now that natural products are making a renaissance. For a long time, um, they were kind of overlooked in maybe the pharmaceutical sense for more synthetically uh, produced compounds. But now with cannabis, with psychedelics, uh, it's really great to see and, you know, a really exciting time to be involved. Yeah, it's absolutely exciting. And I think in a lot of ways, cannabis has helped pave the way forward for the psychedelic renaissance. But there's also some major differences, you know, uh, between the two. If you could talk a little bit, having so much experience with cannabis and now shifting into psychedelics, what some of those similarities and what some of those differences are and how that's kind of impacted you and your work. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the time frame, you know, cannabis and the psychedelic compounds back in the 60s and 70s were pretty prevalent and widespread. And you know, uh, regulations kind of stifled a lot of that research and development for 50 some odd years until recently. So, you know, I would say primarily that's the biggest similarity. Um, you know, they are psychoactive substances. So, um, you know, I think now we're looking at a new realm of mental health, uh, especially with COVID-19. I think that's going to kind of exacerbate some of these issues and it just kind of drives more need for new innovative therapies in that realm. But, you know, differences, I would say, you know, psychedelics are a much more powerful class of compounds, um, certainly something that in a more therapeutic medicinal sense needs to be administered by somebody having supervision during the process. And, you know, you can't just have a psychedelic experience to have, uh, you know, a therapeutic outcome. You do have to have sort of the psychotherapy administration as well. And, 
you know, I think you can draw some similarities between, you know, potentially an evolving market towards that. But I maybe would proceed with a little bit of caution because, you know, the types of regulations that need to be administered uh, on a large scale, more, uh, you know, cannabis like market with psychedelics, I think it's going to be a little bit more challenging. Um, but again, uh, Silera Biosciences is, is more of a biotechnology company. So going more of the traditional pharmaceutical path to develop new compounds for therapeutic uses. And really that's our main focus. So there is an established regulatory pathway in order to, to do that. And obviously there are some, some pretty interesting data and companies that are using that quite effectively currently. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the big differences I know for investors with uh, psych the psychedelic market that's emerging is the fact that it's mainly only clinical and uh, medicalized and there's no recreational component to it, you know, like cannabis. I know Kevin O'Leary, that's a really famous thing he talked about is he had not, he wanted nothing to do with any um, recreational drugs, uh, but he's a big investor, obviously, with Bruce Linton and I think Encompass mm -hmm. Pathways, you know. Um, so to talk a little bit more about Silera and the race to IP, you know, because that's a big thing right now in this space. I know we talked a little bit more in preparation for this episode. You guys are working on novel methods to deliver, like compounds mm -hmm. like psilocybin and maybe derivatives. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so we have a, a pretty multifaceted strategy uh, on the IP front. Obviously, looking at the biotechnology sector, patents and IP is some of the most valuable assets that you can create. So primarily that is our focus right now. We are preclinical. And um, like you mentioned, we are looking at different delivery systems. So these compounds have been known for, you know, decades and decades, and they have a great safety profile, which is an excellent place to start for the development of new therapeutics. Um, where I do think, you know, some of these studies are falling short is looking at different formulation options. Uh, you know, we mentioned the, the clinical aspect and having the, the psychedelic breakthroughs in order to have, you know, effects for PTSD or depression. So we're also looking at other ways to make more outpatient therapy so you don't have to have the psychotherapy aspects, uh, primarily microdose focused. Um, and right. Myself and a fellow Silera co-founder, Dr. Jackie Salm, uh, we worked for a long time together in the, the cannabis industry as well as some of our PhD research. So we're you know pretty well versed in different formulation varieties that we can deliver and obviously making those methods suitable for single administration so you don't have the abuse potential that you would for a take-home therapy. Um, and additionally, we are developing a suite of novel compounds um, whether they be potential prodrugs to psilocin and piggybacking off some of uh, psilocybin's current research, but as well looking at methods of reducing the, the psychoactivity of some of these analogs so that, again, we can produce them more in an outpatient therapy. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I think uh, a big discussion around this space in drug development right now is the psychoactivity factor and, and how much that might contribute to the therapeutic benefit. Um, but I think there's maybe more than two sides, but two two ways to look at it is the full dose effect, you know, and, and the obvious mm -hmm. therapeutic benefits that come with that. But then the phenomenon of microdosing and all the benefits that people are reporting that haven't been any official clinical trials with microdosing yet. Uh, is that something that Silera looks, uh, I mean, how, how are you guys involved in the clinical trial landscape and with your compounds and the work you're doing? So uh, I mentioned, yeah. oh, sorry. Uh, no, that's all, go ahead. 
We are preclinical, so we, we don't have any ongoing clinical trials, but we, we do have a animal study um, beginning at the beginning of next year. And we are looking at uh, taking some of these novel analytes and compounds and dosing them into rodents um, and looking at some behavioral responses. So head twitch, that's sort of the the main assay used to, to look at psychoactivity. You can also look at uh, other behavioral models like isolation, which would give you a little more uh, insight onto potential anxiolytic effects. Um, but primarily we are looking at this initial study at reduction of alcohol consumption. It's a very easy one to do in rodents, very well understood assay. Uh, so we're, we're kind of putting all of this together and obviously looking at uh, the safety profiles of some of these new compounds, you can't just go straight into humans. You have to kind of validate into other mammals before before getting to that stage. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, man. So, I mean, as a fellow scientist myself, I think it's really, I'm really fascinated by the pharmacology of a lot of these compounds. And I think it's really cool in the drug development, the way that we're looking to kind of improve upon nature, you know, it's kind of the, the mm -hmm. core of the whole practice as it is. So what are some, uh, specifically, what are some of the components of psilocybin, for example, or maybe DMT that you're looking to improve upon for, uh, to make something more marketable pharmacologically? Yeah, that's a great point you mentioned about uh, natural products. So um, every year or two, uh, the major natural products researchers come out with sort of a landscape of all the pharmaceutical medications over the last 30 or 40 years, they've put out review articles. And I believe now about 58 to 60% of all current pharmaceutical drugs are either natural products or derived from natural products. So it's really a great starting point for drug development because the complexity that nature provides, um, they already have inherent biological purpose uh, rather than just synthesizing things in the lab and hoping something works. Um, however, obviously, um, you know, it's not always the most sustainable or scalable method to produce, uh, you know, compounds for a large clinical trials or for commercialization, but, Again, yeah, it's a, it's a great starting point. And a lot of these compounds, the, the natural products, they do lack some stability. You know, if you're looking at just psilocybin itself, obviously you have the blue oxidation into psilocin and, um, you know, the phosphate group of this compound is, um, you know, particularly labile in its natural state, but synthetically also isn't the easiest compound to produce. Uh, you know, the, the synthetic pathway is well understood, but the phosphorylation step is actually uh, a fairly difficult, low yielding step. Um, so, you know, just looking at that particular compound, obviously there's a lot of different modifications you can do in a, a process called medicinal chemistry. So mm -hmm. looking at structure activity relationships of the various compounds. And there is a lot of research that's been done. I don't know if you can see over my shoulder, uh, PCAL, PCAL, yeah. obviously, you know, Alexander Shulgin has, has done a lot of that work in bioassays. Uh, so that's, again, a good starting point, looking at safety and tolerability. Um, yeah. Efficacy, obviously a little bit of that is anecdotal, but, you know, really what you need to do is, is demonstrate the full plethora in order to, to go through the clinical trials. And, you know, a lot of these compounds do, I mentioned the stability of them isn't great, but looking at different delivery options. So DMT is one that you mentioned, doesn't really have oral bioavailability unless you have an MAOI inhibitor. And, right. you know, that enzyme varies quite a bit from gender and populations, um, ethnicities. So, you know, trying to develop a, a co-administered drug like that through the pharmaceutical pathways, challenging to say the least. So 
there's obviously different drug delivery methodologies that you can produce uh, to administer these compounds, not just in a clinical setting, but outpatient. And again, that's that's really our focus. And we've already done and started a lot of this work, uh, <clears throat> filed a number of patents already, and have relationships with uh, the Neuroscience Institute at the University of South Florida. We're actually a part of the incubator program there and submitted paperwork to start working with controlled substances. Yeah, that's that's super cool. I just wrote a blog on the psilocybin supply chain. I, I did a collaboration with SciGen, you know, and it's interesting mm -hmm. that you talk about that that pathway. People are trying really innovative things now using yeast in a, like a beer-like process. I know that was a, a pretty popular story yeah. that just came out. So how do you forecast? There's a very high demand, despite it being still a Schedule One compound in the United States and across the world. Uh, a lot of these firms that are producing um, psilocybin and synthetic psilocybin are already you know, all their products spoken for, for clinical trials and stuff for the next couple of years. So uh, what is your comment on the supply chain? How can this process be improved and how do you foresee this kind of playing out? Do you think there'll be a shortage? Do you think we'll be able to keep up with the demand? Um, what are your thoughts? I don't necessarily see or foresee a, a supply shortage of some of these compounds. Obviously, there's a number of uh, people in the space looking at different methodologies, whether it be uh, biosynthetic yeast or, you know, the mushrooms themselves, quite frankly, um, you know, if I were looking at producing um, fungally derived psilocybin, I'd be looking at liquid cultures. Uh, it's much more easy to control. You can still produce your active ingredient in a shorter amount of time. Uh, however, not a lot of people are looking at that. Um, I knew there is uh, mimosa therapeutics and, you know, hats off to them. That's, that's a great way of doing it. Um, and synthetically, you know, that's a pretty renewable source of doing it. The, the synthetic pathways are well understood. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, not so much on this, the active ingredient supply. There's also, you know, a wide range of uh, pharmaceutical grade API manufacturers. Um, you know, most of these synthetic steps are, you know, four to seven steps. So not necessarily the hardest to produce. And um, kind of uh, lost my train of thought in your question. Um, no, no worries. <laughs> that, that's, um, that's, that's why this is recorded. It helps. It helps uh, yeah. I'll put a, a little note for Condor at 1145. To... Okay. All right. Thanks. Um, yeah, one, one of the things I, I thought would be cool to, I obviously wanted to finish that thought. Yeah, where was I going with this? Uh, you know, I think generally, I, I think you're going to see supply potential, supply and demand issues once these become approved therapies. Uh, looking at MDMA and psilocybin, you have to have, you know, the cohort of psychotherapists and, you know, treatment administrators and having the ability to do that in, you know, relatively a couple of years. And I think there is going to be a significant demand. So I think the ability to produce the compounds is there, but administering them in the clinic, I think there could be a bottleneck, but I think time will tell. Mm. That's really cool. Yeah, one of the things that you brought up that I thought was fascinating was how much the administration and the formulations will differ from the clinic to at-home use, you know. Um, recently, we just ran a piece on how Entheon Biomedical is trying to use IV DMT uh, mm -hmm. for opioid addiction, which is super radical. And uh, it seems yeah. really uh, like a, a really novel approach, you know. And of course, psilocybin, synthetic psilocybin can be used intravenously as well, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in, in the clinic and some of these other compounds. Uh, so have you ever, I mean, what, what are your comments and thoughts on that 
clinical experience of having someone having such a profound uh, psychoactive experience in a clinic with a therapist, you know, um, maybe using IV DMT or IV psilocybin or psilocin. Um, what does that clinical landscape and therapy setting kind of look like to you, you know? Well, with IV, you can certainly, um, you know, tailor the, the duration of experience a little bit better. Obviously, DMT is a pretty short uh, duration of action. Psilocybin is slightly longer, but still, you know, looking at a lot of other pharmaceutical drugs, fairly short. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, you, I think having the four to eight hour psychedelic experience in the clinic, I think, again, that's part of the bottleneck that you might see on the clinic side and the amount of patients that you mm -hmm. can see in a day when it's going to take one clinician, you know, a full day to administer one treatment. So right. certainly trying to shorten that duration of action is going to be important, uh, one to provide more opportunities for healthcare providers as well as patients that, you know, get access. Um, but as well, you know, the longer you're under a psychedelic trip, the more opportunity there is for challenging experiences and bad trips, which, you know, can be therapeutic in their own setting. But I think you're going to try to avoid that if you can. Um, I do think IV though is going to be a little bit invasive. I couldn't imagine uh, undergoing a psychedelic experience with a needle in my arm. Uh, right. This doesn't quite uh, jive, I think. Um, certainly there are other ways to administer and reducing the first pass effect. Um, you know, obviously inhalation is another method that some people administer DMT. Um, mm. You know, transdermal is another way to bypass the first pass effect. So. Uh, while IV, I think, can be effective, obviously, you're going to get the drug into your system. There's no doubt about that. Uh, it is a bit invasive, I think, for large patient populations. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because, you know, these the, the different psychedelic compounds have such differing bioavailabilities. For example, what came comes to mind is ketamine. You know, like ketamine mm -hmm. is very popular to be used uh, intravenously in the clinic. And with the way that that drug kind of works, you're really limited besides IM and IV, you know, to really get a good efficacious response. But that's not necessary uh, for some of these other compounds, you know, and, and that can be utilized in, in other ways. So uh, I'd love to know a little bit more about your, like going back a little bit, your, uh, you know, being a PhD, what did you study when you were getting your PhD? And how did you first get to, you know, interested into psychoactive compounds like cannabis and psychedelic drugs. Well, yeah, I mean, PhD in a natural products lab. You're you're around natural products all day. Uh, primarily, we were focused on marine organisms, so going diving. Luckily, in the the Florida Keys, nice uh, temperate waters. Uh, but we also did a lot of research in Antarctica and looking at some of the the diverse marine invertebrates that grow down there, and. You know, the, the macroorganisms, the sponges, tunicates, algae, they also produced a plethora of compounds, but we were also primarily focused on different microorganism populations growing from those organisms, soil, mangrove habitats. Um, and I mean, we had a number of collaborators that we worked with who would screen these various compounds in their assays, cancer, antibiotics, uh, antimalarials. We actually had a grant with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation so it was, you know, a lot of drug discovery and finding new compounds and elucidating their structure, which is, you know, a lot of parallels to what we're doing now at Stylera. And, you know, obviously cannabis being a natural product, uh, you know, one that a lot of people were talking about. In my time in grad school, it was this, the cannabis movement was just starting. And, you know, 
I guess in grad school, I didn't really see myself going into the cannabis industry. Um, but it, you know, it really did work out with my skill set, and um, you know, learned a lot about different formulation techniques. Um, I haven't really been really great at growing plants, but I learned a lot about growing cannabis. Not that I do, but um, right. and as well, you know, just the whole startup scene in a very complex industry where you've got regulations, you've got tons of competitors. And, you know, again, there's a lot of parallels to what we're seeing now in the psychedelics industry. And, you know, going back to some of the research in, in my graduate studies and looking at various microorganisms and, and different fungal cultivation techniques, obviously psilocybin is one that I was well aware of. And, you know, while I'd say that I'm a, a pretty happy go lucky person, um, you know, I have had my experiences with psychedelics and, uh, you know, psilocybin was one that was, you know, personally, you know, beneficial, but certainly I would say uh, my experience with DMT completely changed my life. And uh, that was a little over a year ago now. And it was uh, in some ways, I think the catalyst to Silera what it is now. And, you know, my experience with it, it just, I wanted to understand how these compounds work and how they can be administered. And, you know, I think we really are at a precipice of changing mental health and, you know, the way we treat these and look at these various illnesses and these compounds are, they've been around for a long time, natural products um, that, you know, it's, it's a really fascinating time to be a researcher. And, you know, all of these things kind of combined uh, really were just kind of the, the, ideal setting for myself and Dr. Psalm to get into the industry. That's really cool. Uh, so many things I, I want to say about that. <laughs> I look forward to speaking with Jackie as well on, on the yeah. podcast. That'll be really cool. And yeah, man, it's really fascinating. The intersection of science and, and these medicines, you know, and just the, the ability I've had you know, myself is a lot of interesting parallels to my story and yours. I went to the University of Miami, Florida, you know, oh. so I've been, diving, I've been diving in the Florida Keys too. That's cool. the first place I ever went scuba diving actually and off the coast of Miami as well. And uh, mm -hmm. cannabis is also what got me kind of out of the lab and onto my laptop, I guess is what I say, you know, and started mm -hmm. creating content because I realized the need for people like us in the space to to help bring it forward, you know, like uh, mm -hmm. I think cannabis that that need was, you know, with the pathway to medicalization being so clear with psychedelic compounds, it's obviously drawn in a lot of biomedical and uh, companies and clinicians and researchers like yourself. Um, with cannabis, I think that kind of faltered a little bit in the sense that there's a lot of research and a lot of people out there studying the endocannabinoid system and things of that nature. Um, but there's just so much more of a better understanding of the serotonin receptor and how these drugs work in our, our brains and our bodies, you know, that it's really catapulted mm -hmm. research forward and created a lot of cool opportunities for people like us, you know, in, in, yeah. in the space to, to contribute. And I'm super grateful for that. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it's, it's really cool to hear about people's own experiences with psychedelic drugs, you know, and how that's kind of been their inspiration and kind of helped guide and maneuver them to, to the space. Um, so what, what are your plans for Silera moving forward in the future? Big, uh, big picture. Yeah. So, you know, we are very active in the lab. So we are part of the USF Connect Incubator. So we collaborate with a lot of different researchers there. They have a really great neuroscience institute. Uh, it's actually part of the, the Bird Alzheimer's Institute. So another 
uh, mechanism that you mentioned earlier is, you know, potentially microdosing for cognitive disorders like dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And that's another one that we're going to be focusing on with some of our drug delivery technologies and compounds. Um, so I mentioned we have our animals study at the beginning of next year. And really now we're focused, uh, we're doing a lot of medicinal chemistry. We've hired another medicinal chemist along with myself and Dr. Salm to come in and kind of help uh, establish some of these compounds, scale their syntheses so we can start producing them for some of these preclinical work, looking at, you know, all the things that we would need to get to an IND enabling uh, filing with the FDA. So looking at stability, degradants, you know, chemical pathways and synthesis, um, starting formulation of some of these compounds. And again, looking at all those different uh, profiles of our product to, to then go to the FDA. And we are looking at kind of a 2022 timeline to begin sort of a, a, an early phase one clinical trial with some of our compounds. You know, we're, we're looking at a multitude of disorders. You know, I mentioned kind of substance abuse and alcoholism. Alzheimer's is another one that's pretty near and dear to myself and Jackie, as we both have uh, grandparents and parents who have suffered from Alzheimer's disease. So uh, we will begin some, some early trials with that probably, you know, I would say next year. And I would say, you know, kind of a, a newer development that we're, we're starting to investigate is uh, some of the research that's been done at the University of North Carolina and uh, Dr. Brian Ross lab, they've actually uh, crystallized LSD in the, the active site of 5-HT2A and 2B. So that opens up a lot of possibilities wow. for, you know, I mentioned structure activity relationships. Well, you can do that chemically and, you know, bind them in the different assays, but you can also take your protein and change your molecule, put it in there into a computer simulation uh, known as, you know, modeling. Uh, computational modeling and really screen these much quicker and much more efficiently than sitting at a bench, synthesizing the compounds, sending them off for biological assay. Um, so that's actually something we've already started simulations of some of our new chemical entities and looking at the different binding properties and, um, you know, ADME, uh, absorption, distribution, excretion. So, you know, we're trying to put together a full profile that we can go to the FDA and or uh, you know, long term, I would say we are looking to license out some of our technologies. Uh, we know that the drug development process is a very lengthy and expensive endeavor. So we are looking for, you know, other other partners down the line. Uh, essentially, once we establish some baseline safety and efficacy, basically through a, a phase one trial, and then we would look to outlicense some of the later clinical trials. Oh, okay, that's really cool, man. I think that's really fascinating, the the pathway that you guys are on and you're helping pioneer a really uh, important movement, you know, for mental health and just for modern medicine. Uh, I think one of the cool, one of the really cool things I'm excited about is the neuroplastic and neuro the neuroregenerative effects of, of these mm -hmm. compounds. Uh, like you talked about Alzheimer's and, you know, I had a grandparent die of Parkinson's and there could mm -hmm. be a lot of profound uh you know clinical potential here for the for the ability of these compounds you know it's interesting on the on the one hand the psychedelic experience helps us change our mind about so many things uh you mm -hmm. know and then they've, they've also shown us in the lab and through research that these old concepts that we used to have like the you know once these neurons die there's no way for them to be regenerated mm -hmm. uh they're kind of helping us redefine a lot of our expectations of what's possible uh, with health in there too. You know, I think it'd be cool if you could comment on uh, just this whole phenomenon that's taking place. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously Alzheimer's has kind of been the, the big thing that a lot of different researchers have been trying to target. And, you know, primarily they're looking at uh, tau pathways. So basically your brain starts developing these toxic proteins and your body can't metabolize them. So they just kind of agglomerate and get worse. And that's sort of the, actually the later stages of Alzheimer's sort of that's once you start to have symptoms, it's already too late and there isn't a way to even reverse some of it. You're just kind of masking some of the symptoms associated with it. But yeah, there's actually research now showing that looking at different serotonin targeting systems, one, there has been some evidence to show that the serotonin system can modulate some of these tau agglomerations. Uh, neuroinflammation is also a pretty big, um, you know, indication within the, the Alzheimer's population and these compounds are very, very potent neuroinflammatory, anti-inflammatory agents. Um, and as well, you're looking at anecdotally, you know, potentially the, the microdosing aspects being beneficial for cognitive enhancement. So, you know, we, we know some of the targets for Alzheimer's and how these, how the disease progresses, but the targets that a lot of these drugs have been targeting aren't effective. So we need to find new ways of targeting different ways. I'm saying that we're targeting so many times. <laughs> sure, I, I get what you're saying though. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can edit that part out. Sure. We're at uh, 1159. <clears throat> <clears throat> Thanks. So to pick up. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. So we know how the towel pathways work and, you know, how it's associated with the disease state, but we need to find other mechanisms of action in order to develop new therapies because what's currently being done isn't effective. And there's been mm -hmm. loads of failed clinical trials on the Alzheimer's side. And, you know, when you kind of combine all the different ways that these compounds and the psychedelics can be effective for cognitive disorders, I think really, you know, this is the very promising way to look at it. And, uh, actually, you mentioned some of the, the studies now showing the, the brain growth factors. So DMT, primarily most psychedelics target 5-HT2A as agonists, and that's where you get the psychedelic experience. Um, so generally what they do to, to confirm that the compound is targeting 5-HT2A as an agonist is they dose an antagonist, so it blocks the binding of the other agonist. So that worked for LSD, Ibogaine. I think MDMA, but it didn't work for DMT, which is fairly surprising. Um, so it means that 5-HT2A alone isn't responsible for some of the, the brain uh, and neuron growth. So it's a really you know fascinating discovery that just came out, I believe in 2018. So again, there's, there's a lot of preliminary data that's out there, but trying to piece it together into you know, an actionable, discoverable, uh, therapeutic is, you know, that's going to take some time, but, you know, we're more than happy and engaged and ready to, to put our compounds to work. Yeah, dude, it's really the, the perseverance that people have towards the for psychedelic research and science in this field right now is really amazing to see, you know, because there's 
a lot we know that like we talked about, especially in comparison to cannabis, but there's still so much that we don't know, you know, oh, and there's yeah. uh, the, the, the different flavors of psychedelic experiences and how that translates to the mechanisms of action. Like what you just talked about with DMT is so fascinating, you know, like mm -hmm. it doesn't just come down to the 5-HT2A receptor, you know, like, like we thought it did for so many of the traditional serotonergics. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, and uh, this might be a little off topic, but I think it's you know relevant to the discussion. So if you look at some of the Johns Hopkins studies with psilocybin and they correlate basically the antidepressive effect with essentially the mystical experience. So the greater the psychedelic effect, the greater the antidepressive effect. And you know, obviously some level of consciousness is involved in the neuroplastic uh, changes that you've mentioned. But if you look at sort of the, the starting point for a lot of these compounds in the clinical development, it's in rodents. And there's a lot of data out there to suggest that rodents don't have any form of consciousness, but psilocybin still has the same level of antidepressive effects in rodents in you know, the four swim tests. So um, like you said, the mechanism of action is, you know, it's still yet unknown for these compounds, but I think, yeah, I mean, the research out there certainly is pointing in the right direction across a wide range of uh, indications. That's so fascinating that it's not only teaching us more about our our brains, but about animal brains too, you know? Uh, yeah. Those rats could be so much more conscious than we ever gave them credit for. You know, I think that's a really fascinating part of all yeah. of this as well. Uh, man, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Uh, one of the last questions I wanted to ask you was just, I, I know DMTs, uh, and you, you talked about psilocybin, has really affected your trajectory and, and your pathway and all of this. Do you think that people in this space should, uh, people that are in, uh, you know, producing psychedelics or, or working in industry, should at least have one psychedelic experience in their, uh, as, as a part of their, you know, experience to, to move things forward? Do you think that's necessary or, or maybe not? You know, I think psychedelics... <sighs> Might want to cut this out. I'm trying to think of the right answer. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think psychedelics maybe aren't for everyone. Um, you know, obviously they are helpful for people with various mental illnesses. Um, however, a lot of these clinical studies that have been going on now, they're emitting, you know, a fairly substantial patient population, whether it be with heart abnormalities, prior mental health illnesses, um, you know, you name it. So, you know, I honestly do believe they're going to be beneficial for anyone and everyone. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that everyone who needs to undergo the research needs to take psilocybin, sure, MDMA, sure. DMT. I, in some ways, I do think it is beneficial, though, to understand it. You know, if you look at maps, for instance, I believe they're making all their uh, facilitators or administrators of the drug actually have the experience. So they're better able to communicate with their patients. And certainly in that setting, I do think it's helpful because you just can't necessarily wrap your mind around it unless you've had the experience with it. And even then, <laughs> and even then it's hard to wrap your mind around it, you know, but yeah, I absolutely. I get what you're saying. One of the things I just thought of actually it would be cool yeah. to get your take on before we jump off is when you talk about maps and some of these organizations and the research and the trials that they've done, I can't help but notice how strategic they've been in their research. You know, mm -hmm. um, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, 
things like PTSD or treatment resistant depression, PTSD in particular, it's a human condition, you know, something mm -hmm. we can all suffer from, not just first responders, not just people in the military or veterans. Um, but the research has definitely been kind of biased to sample these people uh, with probably a political motivation to help it kind of win bipartisan political support. Um, how do you think this research at this point, do you think it's been successful? Do you think that they're so far pretty successful in their strategy? And then do you hope to see this research be expanded to include, you know, the, the wider spectrum of the human population? Yeah, I mean, look, their, their results kind of speak for themselves. So, I mean, you know, at some level with clinical trials, you kind of have to be selective with the people that you include, um, you know, whether that's political or strictly medical, you know, I'll leave that to another interpretation. But, you know, again, I think, you know, traumas are out there and everywhere. And, you know, the pandemic that we're going through now, I think, you know, some of these are going to be exacerbated. So whatever we can do uh, to increase acceptance and availability, you know, I think that's what needs to be done. Yeah, fascinating. Well, I know it's, you know, the contributions of people like yourself and us having conversations like this that are going to help, you know, destigmatize and raise awareness and, you know, uh, hopefully push all the right buttons to make this accessible for the whole world. Yeah. And I mean, we're off to a pretty good start. So, I mean, you know, onwards and upwards. Absolutely. Uh, Chris, do you, uh, I always give my guests the last word if you have any thoughts or anything you wanted to share with our audience uh, and just definitely let them know where they can find out more about you and Silera. Uh, that would be great before we jump off. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to reach out to me directly, my email is chris at silera.com, P-S-I-L-E-R-A.com. Maybe we can edit that part out. Maybe. Okay. Shit. <laughs> it happens. It happens to everybody. <laughs> okay. Uh, let me take another crack at that one if you don't mind, Garoff. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So, yeah, if you want to reach out to me directly, my email is chris at silera.com, P S I L E R A.com, or just visit our website uh, and see what we're up to. We're constantly uh, putting out updates of some of our research and new collaboration. Then, you know, if you'd like to follow along with our journey, feel free to, to reach out. You know, I would say, obviously, I've mentioned uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and, you know, how how this is, I think, kind of brought a lot of the mental illnesses and isolation and kind of once you have isolation, that typically leads to substance abuse, which we're kind of seeing now. So in some ways, you know, I think the timing of some of the, the research that myself and some of the other uh, industry is doing is very worthwhile. And you know, I'd hate for this to be kind of the spark that really that, you know, changed the the perceptions of these compounds and mental health in general. But I mean, again, it's, it's a really exciting time to be a researcher and to be involved in this industry. Um, you know, the data that we had 50 years ago <clears throat> in the 60s and 70s. Now we have modern day technology that we can actually image these compounds, figure out how they work in the brain and utilize them to, you know, make beneficial uh, therapies, uh, hopefully for specific populations, but for the greater community as well. And, you know, it's going to take the whole industry in order to come together to, to really put the right image on these compounds, because 
unfortunately, all it takes is one bad outcome of, you know, maybe an at-home use or whatever. And, you know, I think that really can, to, can be a negative aspect to the industry. So, you know, let's come together as a community, as an industry, and as a civilization to, to really put ourselves in a better position for the future. That's an amazing point. And you're right. We all want to do it correctly this time and, and learn from, you know, what transpired in the 60s and 70s, because uh, this medicine has immense potential. And and yeah, I think we're both really excited to see it move forward. So thank you so much for your time, Chris. I really appreciate it. Uh, you were, this is a really great conversation. And I look forward to speaking with you, with Jackie, and uh, just seeing all the progress you're going to make at Salera in the future. Well, thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. Uh, you know, Happy to answer any more questions offline or online. So thanks again, Gaurav. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, everybody. I'm Gaurav Dubey, and this has been another great episode of the Sci-Fi Podcast, where we speak with leading industry researchers, clinicians, and experts to unravel the mystery that is psychedelic medicine. Thank you all so much. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks so much, Chris. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks for joining the Sci-Fi Series, brought to you by Microdose and the Conscious Fund. Visit our website at www.microdose.buzz.